Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, May 19th, 2017. A little bit of a warning, no theme today, unless the theme is like false teachers and then a good sermon. You know, that's not really a theme. <laughs> Fridays are often like that. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of really crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word. It's not because I'm cranky, although sometimes I'm cranky, but it's because doctrine is important, and God's Word says so. In fact, God's Word reveals in uh, Titus chapter 1 that it is God's will that Christians silence false teachers. In Christ's church, only sound doctrine is to be preached. Only sound doctrine is to be taught. And so to help you understand what sound doctrine is and how to spot false doctrine, we compare and uh, contrast with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curricula apparently we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Of course, everybody knows that the way you can tell that somebody's a sound, solid teacher is because their ministry is growing like a weed. No, the reason it's growing like a weed is because it's weed. That's how weeds grow. (laughs) Anyway, we demonstrate that here and help you understand God's Word correctly how to engage you know, the Bible in sound biblical hermeneutics, good exegesis, a proper distinguishing between the law and the gospel, understanding the centrality of the message of Christ and him crucified for our sins, and the need to call everybody in all nations to repentance and uh, trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's really what we're all about. So like I said at the opening of the program, um, today's episode, no theme, no theme whatsoever. Um, (laughs) Again, and just bad teaching in hour number one, good teaching in hour number two, a theme does not make. That it just 
doesn't work that way. So what we're going to do today is we're going to be bringing samples of different types of twisting of Scripture, if you would. And we're going to start off with the more subtle one first. And the more subtle one is not an an overt twisting of God's Word, but a twisting of God's Word by being distracted from actually teaching God's Word. You know, you know, for instance, I mean, you know, I know a few things about different things out there in the world. I used to work in the corporate world, so I might know a thing or two about maybe like management or corporate sales or marketing or strategies for doing comparative analysis between you and your competition, right? Now, this is some of the things that I did when I was out in the corporate world. And so if I were to ascend the pulpit at Kongsvinger up in Oslo, Minnesota, and, you know, stand up and say, today I'm going to be giving a sermon on, oh, that oh-so-important topic of increasing sales so that your corporation can succeed. You like look at me like, are we here on the wrong day? What's going on here? No, 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 no. I, Jesus is all concerned about your success and stuff like that. So I'm going to help you with all of the years, uh, you know, decades of experience that I have in the corporate world, and and I'm going to let you learn from me all these these amazing pearls of corporate wisdom and, and financial management and things like that. You think, why are we doing that? It, well, don't you dare you know, challenge God's anointed. I mean, this is the message God laid on my heart, you know, so I got to listen to what God is saying. <laughs> this is how people talk, right? So we're going to head off first. We're going to head out to uh, Andy Stanley's uh, church. So we'll do a vision casting leader update, and we're going to check in with one of his sermons. Um, it's entitled, Pack Your Bags. Uh, now and then. That's the name of the message. We're going to just listen to it just uh, for a little bit. And note that the topic and everything he's talking about has like zero, absolutely nothing to do with an actual biblical teaching or doctrine. You know, and even though, you know, later in the sermon, which we won't get to it, I mean, he tries to baptize this message. This is not Christian doctrine. It's it's nothing. Then we're going to switch it up a little bit. We're going to uh, do a Joyce Meyer update, and we're going to listen to a message of hers titled "Let God Fight Your Battles." And this is a this is a sneaky one. It's a sneaky one because here's the thing: Scripture does explicitly, unequivocally teach that we as Christians are engaged in a battle. No, no doubt, no doubt about it. But who we are battling is kind of important. So if I were to say, listen, Scripture says you're in a pitched battle with um, your plumber, you'd say, what? Or or worse, you're in a pitched battle with the mayor of your city. I don't know about that. Oh, I know, you're in a pitched evil battle with your boss. <laughs> He's sitting there going, wait, whoa, 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 wait a second, wait a second. What does Scripture say? Scripture says our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? So, uh, in other words, you're not in a battle with anybody else. So, we're going to hear her talking about the importance of letting God fight your quote-unquote battles, but the who you're fighting is 
just how shall we say, um, biblically vague and um, fuzzily inaccurate. Maybe that's a good way of putting it. And uh, then we're going to do part two. Uh, somewhere in there we're going to obviously have to take a break. And then we're going to do part two of us listening to Father Gans, Father Gans, uh, from um, uh, that uh, seeker-driven church out there in Portland, Oregon, uh, where John Mark Comer is the vision casting leader, as he's going to uh, talk to us more about this uh, this examining contemplative mysticism exercise that he's going to lead these people in. He didn't quite get to it when we did part one, but what you're going to be listening for, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll hear it, is is that uh, Father Gans is going to speak about contemplative prayer. In terms, it sounds eerily like mm, Jennifer LeClaire. Anyway, so then in hour number two, we're going to head over to – we're going to cross the pond. We're going to head over to Gervais Charmley's uh, Bethel Evangelical Church out there in Hanley, Stoke-on-Trent, as we listen to his sermon titled Guard. Guard. And uh, it is a good sermon to round the week off with. So that is what we're going to be doing today. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We have got a lot of ground that we need to cover. And as a result of that, we need to get right to it. Here's our vision casting leader update music. By the way, you need to play air guitar while this is playing. Vision. 
Lobos. That's uh, Los Lobos Ministry Records. Important uh, song there in the seeker-driven uh, movement, Casting Vision. So uh, we're heading over to uh, North Point where uh, Andy Stanley holds court. And we're going to listen to a part of a sermon, well, you know, that uh, just seems like it's just so engaging. It's just so, you know, relevant. It's just so... Off topic is the best way I could put it. I mean, has nothing to do with like anything that would, you know, that's even in a biblical text that God would teach us. So uh, that's kind of the setup. And without any further ado, let's get right to it. Here's Andy Stanley. Hey, a couple of weeks ago, uh, my son Andrew and I went to hear our uh, favorite preacher, Jerry Seinfeld. And, um, <laughs> It was fabulous. Um, the, the sermon, it was kind of like all over the place. There wasn't... He, what? A Jerry Seinfeld sermon? Okay. I mean, I thought Seinfeld was a comedian. Okay. It wasn't really like a theme, which I was, I, it was hard to follow the theme of the sermon. He did mention God a couple times, and I wasn't even sure how that connected to the theme of the sermon. But anyway, during his... Um, I'm pretty sure it wasn't a sermon then. Um, incredible sermon. He, he made one great point that I thought was so good, we should do a whole series about it. And he, he made the point that wherever we are, we're never really settled where we are. We're always thinking about what's next. So wherever we are, toward the end of wherever we are, we say, we got to go, I got to go, I got to go. In fact, some of you, you're already thinking about, you got to go. So you, you heard that right. The inspiration for this sermon series, which is titled Pack Your Bags. The sermon, by the way, is now and then. The inspiration is a Jerry Seinfeld comedy routine. He called it a sermon, but I just consider that a deflection tactic. So because he and his son went and saw Seinfeld in concert somewhere, you know, maybe at one of the improv, you know, comedy clubs or whatever. So because of that, you know, this is the inspiration for this sermon series. So this is a form of twisting God's word by just ignoring it is the best way I can put it. Go, And that was his point. I thought that's true. Wherever we are, we're never really settled. Um, we just are always thinking about always thinking about what's next, what's next, what's next. So, um... So this, for the next few weeks, the Pack Your Bag series, this is a series about how to prepare to get to where you got to get to from where you currently are that you just got to from where you recently were. Right. Yeah, that, that's an important doctrine taught in 4th Corinthians. Unfortunately, we don't have an extant copy of 4th Corinthians, but I'm sure if it survived to this day, you know, this important biblical Christian doctrine, which would transform your life and make you more like Jesus. It's there in 4th Corinthians, you know. That you can't even remember, okay? So that's what, that's what our theme is, okay? So let's go over this again. Now, anyway, the short version of Pack Your Bags, here's what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks, is how to prepare for what's next. Now, hopefully, you have something coming up next that you are uh, looking forward to. You may be slightly nervous. You may feel prepared, unprepared. But hopefully, you got something coming up in the next few months or maybe the next year. Or maybe you've got a three-year window and there's something coming up that you know, you're looking forward to. Maybe um, you got somebody. Is this career guidance? What? What is this? It's about to graduate from high school or graduate from college. Maybe you're about to graduate from high school or graduate from college. Maybe you're looking at what's next for you is college or graduate school. Maybe you're. 
maybe Andy Stanley graduated from Christianity. Maybe he graduated from being a pastor to being a life coach. I, you know, I don't know. You're about to get married. You got a wedding or your son or your daughter or grandson or granddaughter. You got a wedding in the future. Or maybe your brother or sister, older brother, older sister. Maybe you're uh, about to have a baby. It's like, wow, that's that's. No, that ain't happening for me. You know, how do I get ready for that? Maybe it's another baby. And another, no, that ain't happening either. Another baby can mean a lot of things. If you have two, another baby, that's three. If you have four. Anyway, so this can mean a lot of things. No, no, I, I've got three kids. We're, we're done. Things, okay? So you got that coming up. Uh, maybe you're about to start a new job or you're looking forward to a new job. Nope, I'm going to keep doing this as long as you, there's people out there in Christ's church who are really popular who are twisting God's word or worse, ignoring it. Um, I will have a job. That's kind of the way I look at it. I look forward to the day when Christianity repents so much so that they don't need fighting for the faith. That would be fantastic. You know, <laughs> just I'll sail off into the sunset or something. You know? Job, maybe a new school. Maybe you're on the verge of becoming empty nesters, you know, and you're, you're so excited about that. You think and then you all look at each other. It's like. Can we handle that much time with alone? You know, so it's like you're excited about it. Um, some of you retirement and this is, this is, I don't mean retirement like in the next three months, but the next big thing for you. In other words, you've kind of gotten to the empty nest thing and the next, the next thing. So for all of us, hopefully for all of you, there's something coming up. That's a next that you're actually looking forward to. You see it coming and you're excited and you're a little bit stressed about it. And that makes perfect sense. Let me explain why. Whatever is next, let me show you this little stair step. Whatever's next. Did you did you preach through the entire Bible and now you're bored with it? So you decided to just forget anything that it actually teaches? Means a transition. A transition always means change. And even if it's a good change, it results in stress. That transitions, all transitions are always stressful even the one you know the transitions between segments here at fighting for the faith we put music in there that just totally alleviates all the stress and kind of eases us transitions us into each segment you know i find music helps in transitions is will, will you be talking about that technique and that you look forward to i mean remember the last time you had the conversation with the mother of a bride-to-be remember how excited she was and how stressed out she was all at the same time, right? Remember some of you the first that day that you took your, your firstborn child to school for the first time? You know, and that backpack was about as big as they were. And you pointed them in the direction. And maybe it was an older brother or sister or younger brother or sister. And so there's actually an entire section of scripture that will help me transition into taking my grandson to kindergarten. Wow. Yeah. I, I, in all my years of reading scripture, I totally missed that portion of scripture and 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 you sort of point them in the direction and you're looking so forward to your kids going to school it's what they're supposed to do if they didn't go that's a problem but even though you're looking forward to it it's what's next it's still so stressful um you know in your family it's like our family there's some stories that are kind of like the legendary stories that you share among family members when you run out of things to talk about and so one of them right kind of like what you're doing right now apparently you've run out of biblical things to talk about so you're just kind of you know off-roading at this point. In our family is the story of my wife, Sandra's brother, Jack, her younger brother, Jack, going to first grade, the very first day of first grade. It's like, oh, I can't wait to hear the story about Jack going to first grade. I'm sure it'll make me more like Jesus and really help me understand sound biblical doc. What text are you exegeting again? Like one of those stories. So, you know, his parents were nervous. Of course, Jackie and Bob were nervous and they get him there and they sort of put him out of the car and, and he heads over, you know, wobbling around and goes to school. And of course, you're nervous that whole day. How's it going? How's it going? Then you pick him up and get him home. And so they ask him, they say, Jack, 
you know, how was the first day of school? And here's what he said. They wrote it down. He said, there were too many children. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. I mean, it's delivered. I mean, great comedic timing. And this is such an engaging. Isn't the job of a pastor, you know, to preach the word, (laughs) you know, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. You know, does any of this sound familiar? If you, if it doesn't, look up Second Timothy chapter four, verses one through four. You know, just you know, take a little time and open it up and see what you see. So, okay, all right. This, this is really funny, though. I mean, people there are eating it up. This is very entertaining. You know, it gets better. And I, I don't think so. And I didn't learn to read. You told me if I went to school, I would learn how to read, and I don't know how to read. And so I'm not going back. Which means- oh, man, what a great story. Great. Oh, that's just precious. Absolutely precious. <laughs> yeah. So the important doctrine of how to prepare for the next thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which means they had a. I, hopefully the people there are taking this to heart because they need to start preparing for the next church. You know, the one where the pastor actually preaches the word. A second stressful day of trying to get Jack, you know, involved in elementary school. So here's the question. Are there really things, are there things that we can do now to prepare for what's next? I mean, is this even possible? And the reason I ask the question or pose the question is because, uh, you know. It, the reason you're posing the question is because you and your son went and saw Seinfeld. You just said that earlier. When you think about what's next, it's like you're, you're looking forward to it. But since you've never experienced that exactly, can you really even get ready? And the answer is yes, you really can prepare for what's next. That's what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. <laughs> wow. Okay. A few weeks on this. Wow. I mean, couldn't you just write down some bullet points and maybe print out a pamphlet or something and you know, get back to your actual job? of preaching the word. Wow. Okay. So there you go. Folks over there at North Point, they're a little distracted right now. They don't have time for God's word. They're trying to learn how to prepare for the next thing. Okay. Well, talk about the next thing. Let's move along here. You got to accentuate the positive limb. Minute the negative and latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. You got to spread joy up to the maximum. Bring gloom down to the minimum. Have faith or pandemonium liable to walk upon the scene. To illustrate my last remark, Jonah in the whale, Noah in the ark. What did they do? Just when everything looks so dark Man, they said we better accent Chew it to positive, eat limb Mine it to negative and latch on To the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In-Between Yeah, that's right, don't mess with Mr. In-Between You gotta accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative Alright, so we're heading over to uh, Joyce Meyer's uh, television ministry, and she's going to be teaching us that important doctrine of letting God fight our battles for us. Now, we as Christians, we actually fight a battle. We're in the middle of a war. In fact, do you know what you call a Christian who doesn't realize that they're in a war? That's real simple. A casualty. That's what you call them. Because, yeah, we're all in this war. But the thing is, is that Scripture is actually quite clear. We are not battling against flesh and blood. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, 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 to put it briefly, we are battling against the principalities of darkness. So that being the case, although human beings may make themselves your enemy, there is no human being that is your enemy. Not one. No. No, you have the freedom because they are not your enemy, the devil is, to love and forgive and serve anybody. So, I mean, that's kind of an important part of this whole spiritual warfare thing. It's fought on our knees. So, whoa, that being the case, yeah, I got to make the point here by slapping the microphone. But so we're going to head over and we're going to listen to Joyce Meyer. She's going to talk about letting God fight your battles. And she's going to do some kind of sketchy things with the scripture. But the problem is she, well, how she defines the battle that we're in doesn't quite sound right. And so this is a more, this is kind of subtle twisting of scripture. Whereas, you know, <laughs> Andy Stanley, I mean, he's too busy, you know, working on a Seinfeld thing that he uh, heard. <clears throat> Here's Joyce Meyer attempting to, you know, teach the scriptures. Here we go. How many of you are just tired of feeling like you're fighting something all the time? Okay. Yeah, I fight for the faith every day. I mean, but that's, you know, we're told to do that in Scripture. Well, then the way to recover from that is to learn how to let God fight your battles. God has a battle plan. He's got a battle plan? Wow. And anytime we get in a battle, we need to know how to fight the way that God wants us to fight. See, and every time we quote unquote enter, we're already in a battle. You can kind of think of it this way. Y'all remember, uh, you've heard about World War II. Yeah. How about World War I? Big important things, right? And uh, those, those conflicts have a beginning date and an end date. The problem is we find ourselves as part of a cosmic battle that has a beginning date, but so far has not ended. You can kind of think of it this way. There has been a pitched battle between God and the devil who is warring against God. And that fight has been going on for a long time. Now we can say that Christ has won the war, and he did so by dying for our sins on the cross. That being the case, though, you kind of have to think of Jesus' death on the cross as kind of like D-Day. The outcome of this war is absolutely fixed. It, there's no way to stop it. It's certain. But we ha- we are not celebrating VE Day or VJ Day yet. That happens on the day when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. So we all find ourselves in an already existing war. It's been going on since before you and I were born. And if Christ tarries, it's going to continue on until he returns. And which means that, uh, you know, we will have served our tour of duty uh, during our lifetime. And then when we die, our tour of duty is done. We get our papers and we get to go home. Important stuff to kind of think about here. But the way she's talking, who are we fighting exactly? I said this morning that we have weapons, but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal weapons. This is true. They're not weapons you can see or feel or go to the store and buy. Well, I mean, the correct me if I'm wrong, but our primary weapon is the sword of the spirit, which is our Bible. And last time I checked, they didn't let me ch- you know take it for free when I was at the <clears throat> CPH bookstore. But anyway, yeah, I had to pay for mine. If they're not carnal weapons, then they must be spiritual weapons. Okay, yeah, yeah. What are you talking about exactly? In preaching the word of God to you tonight, I am doing warfare with the enemy. By speaking the word of God 
yeah, but if you're not speaking it correctly and you're teaching false doctrine, you're actually warring against God. That's kind of a weird irony there. I'm helping you do warfare in your life, and I'm doing warfare in my own life just because I'm speaking words that are full of life and power. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to pause right there. This is, um, how shall we say, different? Uh, you know, yeah, so we're, she, she's got, you know, faith-filled words that are full of life and power, and she's, you know, doing warfare with it. Well, we're going to figure out whose side she's fighting for uh, on the other side of the break. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear a little bit more from Joyce Meyer and then we're going to hear Father Gans teaching us a Jesuit practice of contemplative of mysticism. Yeah. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build a God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your god, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. (laughs) Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. (laughs) Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. (laughs) Yes. I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you.
This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that there are sneaky, squid-like ways in which you can twist God's Word. That was just a joke. (laughs) Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith 2 into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute, well, an amount that you pick. That's right. You get to pick your rank in our crew. We have four ranks to choose from. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, let's head back as we continue to listen to Joyce Meyer telling us how to let God fight our battles. Here we go. The Word of God is not just any word. It is a word that changes lives. People don't gather into a building, travel and pay for hotels and all the things you've done to come to hear somebody stand up here and talk for hours on end if it's not something that is going to make a huge difference in your life. Okay, this kind of sounds like a a commercial for how important her words are rather than an actual 
biblical text. I mean, here's the fun part is that when you, you know, open up God's word and you teach it, it's kind of important all by itself because, you know, it's God's word. It's it's funny how that works. You don't even need to like prop it up. It kind of does it all by itself. I love the fact that you pay attention and you're focused. The word goes. <laughs> this sounds like something my mother used to do. Oh, Chris, look at your brother. He's being so good right now. Don't you want to be like him? No. <laughs> it renews our mind. It drops down in our heart and it makes changes for us. So we do have spiritual weapons. Yes. Peace is a weapon. Walking in peace when the enemy's throwing his best at you is. <laughs> I wasn't familiar with the peace weapon. <laughs> peace was the thing that was achieved post battle or something like. Anyway, all right, let's. This <laughs> is like, what am I hearing here? All right, let's do a little, little bit of work here. I mean, there is a biblical text talking about spiritual warfare. Why don't we look at it? Ephesians chapter six. We'll start at uh, verse ten. And uh, let's see if we can kind of figure a few things out. Finally, it says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, not your own. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There we go. So you put on the full armor of God so that you can do what? Stand. Stand against what? The schemes of the devil. The devil is our adversary. Okay, keep that in mind. Even if your boss is ornery and terrible, he's not actually your adversary in this sense when we talk about you know spiritual warfare. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, listen, the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. All right, all right. Against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, okay, so now we know who we're fighting, right? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Do you, do you get the idea of what we're supposed to do here? Does the stand word seem to come out at you a few times? There's a reason for it. Stand, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet have put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You see, peace is not a weapon. The, the, the ready. <laughs> Put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the what? The word of God. And listen, hey, you know, watch what it says now. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. That's you're, you're constantly praying and asking, right? To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Yeah, see, when you're praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you're praying for me, you're doing warfare. That's what this is saying, right? And also for me that words may be given to me in, my, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So there you kind of get the idea, right? So that's the famous armor of God passage, tells us who our adversary is, tells us we're supposed to stand, stand, and stand. You get to get stand, you know, that's kind of the idea. And we pray, and our only offensive weapon is the written word of God. 
all this seems pretty clear to me. Let's see what Joyce is talking about. Because on the screen, she, you know, it's it doesn't say the text, but it gives the reference for the text, Ephesians 6, 14 through 17. All right, so we're, she's in the neighborhood. Let's see what she says. Weapon. Righteousness is a weapon. Knowing who you are in Christ is a piece of armor, but it's also a way for you to fight the enemy. Right, and who's the enemy, Joyce? Wearing the helmet of salvation, thinking the way a child of God should think. (laughs) I did not know that military helmets were thinking caps. I just did not know that about them. The, those, you know, those of you in the U.S. Army or, you know, if you've served in the armed forces, I mean, isn't it good to know that when you put that helmet on, it's like, wah, you were able to think better. That's not the purpose of a helmet. The Bible talks about wielding the two-edged sword, which happens to be this. Right. That's correct. So notice she's referencing the same passage we just read. So, I mean, she's going to rightly identify who our adversary is and all that kind of stuff, right? Notice it doesn't say just wear it on your side. It says get it out of your sheath and use it. Wield that two-edged sword. Right on. So we talked some this morning about using the word of God against the enemy, the power of speaking the word of God. The, the what? <laughs> the, 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 the power of speaking? What do you mean by that? Tonight we're going to find out what our battle position is and just see what God can do for us. I'm surprised she's not wearing khakis. I'm just saying. We'll fight the way he wants us to fight. Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 17. Um, why are you going there? You shall not need to fight in this battle. Take your position. Stand still. And see the deliverance of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. <laughs> what? <laughs> what just happened? I mean, we were there at Ephesians 6, and she was reading out about the armor of God. And now, literally, like a, like a spiritual paratrooper, we've now just jumped right into the middle of a text. No context whatsoever. Second Chronicles 20, verse 17, you shall not need to fight this battle. What battle? Is this the Battle of Normandy? Is this what? What are we? Ba- who? Huh? Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Oh, good. I don't have to do this till tomorrow. <laughs> so, whatever this battle I've just parachuted into, I can cool my heels. Yeah, because it's going to be tomorrow. <laughs> what is going on? Well, you're going to note here that she's not actually <laughs> teaching us anything accurate about what this passage is saying because she's just lopped off you know apparently this you know the sword of the spirit just broke in half i'm you know who knew you know so she doesn't even have a point to it and you know she's cut off part of the sword of the spirit and now we're dealing with like a stubby little stumpy sword thingy and uh and she's left off like the whole context of what's going on here all right, so let's take a look at the text. Second uh, Chronicles 20, we're going to start at verse 5. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah. So Jehoshaphat's our king. 
and this is the is the kingdom of Judah, not in the northern kingdom. And he was in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord, that would be the temple, before the new court, and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not given are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, in your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you did not our God drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham? your friend. So you'll note here where I've started is that Jehoshaphat is in the temple doing what? Praying. Remember when we read about the spiritual warfare that we're in? We stand and what we're to pray. Pray, pray for the saints, pray pray for boldness, pray for the preaching of the gospel. We pray. So here's um here's Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and he's Praying. Hmm, sounds like he's doing spiritual warfare. All right, we continue. So they they have lived in it, and they've built uh, for you in it a sanctuary for your name. If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and we cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. So now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom... You would not let Israel invade when they came down from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they rewarded us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. So now we know what the context is. Ammon and Moab and the people of Mount Seir have conspired together, built an army, and they're coming down, they're marching down to Judah in order to wipe the children of Israel out of their inheritance that God has given to him, right? So what does Jehoshaphat do? He prays, O Lord, you gave us this land. This is our inheritance. These people are going to drive us out. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So notice here, he's not decreeing, he's not declaring, he's not doing the word of faith thingy. I decree and declare that Ammon and Moab are going to turn tail and run. Nope, nope, nope. He's in the temple praying. Yeah, in fact, he's, he's engaging in some pretty fierce warfare. At least if I'm reading Ephesians 6 right. So meanwhile, verse 13, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Wow, so all of Judah, they're there outside of the temple, and they've brought even their little ones. So they've got the children on the hip. They've got their teenagers. It's the men, the women, the children. They're all there. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah of Benaniah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. assembly, And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says Yahweh to you, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but it's God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel, and you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position. 
See the salvation of Yahweh on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and Yahweh will be with you. And then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before Yahweh, worshiping Yahweh. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Now, we're going to note here, all right, this is great stuff, very amazing stuff. But here's the thing. If you know your Old Testament, you're going to know that, well, Jerusalem from time to time was besieged. It was part of what happened here. In fact, one time Israel and Judah were besieged by none other than Nebuchadnezzar, and they weren't delivered that day. They went into captivity. So we got a problem here. We got to be real careful how we use these texts. And so this is an example of uh, of an enemy coming against Israel. And in this particular case, this enemy is doing the work of the devil, the devil wanting to wipe them off the face of the planet so that he can get rid of that promised seed and the bloodline of the Messiah. That's really what's going on here. And um, God is going to intervene and do something. But there's not a promise from this text that we can universally apply to all of us in, in, in that sense. So... We've got to be really careful with these texts. Why do I feel like she's going to engage in narcissism? Why do I feel that way? I, I'm just—it's it's just a weird feeling that I have. Can, don't you feel it? Do you, you feel? Yeah, I feel it. Yeah. Isn't that good news? You don't need to fight in this battle. <laughs> There's a context here, Joyce. Take your position, stand still, and see. The salvation of the Lord. Now, for a lot of years, I thought our position was standing still. I thought, take your position, stand still, was what he was trying to say. But if you read this whole Second Chronicles 20 in context, that's really not the position that he's talking about. Yeah, see, Second Chronicles, that's the way she pronounced it, Chronicles, is not an actual spiritual warfare text that is teaching us, uh, now here's how this is all done. Unless, of course, you want to draw the parallel between the praying in Second Chronicles and Ephesians 6, where there is, there's actual parallel with the praying. <laughs> and so we're going to start over here in verse 1, and we're going to learn some good lessons tonight out of Second Chronicles chapter 20. Verse 1, after this, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and with them, the Minyanites, came against Jehoshaphat to do battle. Have you ever noticed that there's a lot of ites in the Bible? And you know what? I've decided that we've all got our own little brand of ites. It may be the bad bossites, the grouchy neighborites, the backacheites, the, the, the not having enough money to pay our bill ites, but we've all got ites. Yeah. Um, wow. Um. So she's equating the enemies of Israel with a bad back, your boss, or grouchy neighbors. I, I'm pretty sure Ephesians 6 said that our battle is not against flesh and blood. So notice what she's now doing here. She's allegorizing the historical narrative in Second Chronicles 
in order to engage in narcissistic eisegesis. And by allegorizing it, she's now turned the enemies of Israel into, well, it's like a parable. And what do they really point to? Well, the thing they really point to is your bad back, your lack of finances, uh, grouchy boss, and things of that nature. No, that is not how this works. They come after us, things that want to upset us. (laughs) Yeah, things that come after me and want to upset me. Well, Joyce Meyer's upsetting me right now. I guess she's she's a Joyce Meyerite. And it was told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude has come against you from beyond the Dead Sea, from Edom, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat feared. And I want you to pay close attention to that because our first natural response to any kind of bad news or trouble is going to be a feeling of fear. Yeah, okay, sure. Now, what we do at that point is very important. The word fear actually means to take flight or to run away from. Now, a lot of times people don't want to deal with their problems, so they find some way to avoid them. Some people drink too much. Some people go out and spend money they don't have to spend just to not think about their problems. Some people go to bed. They just sleep. Sometimes people can just hide in, in uh, drugs. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that people avoid their problems. My mother avoided the problems that we had in our home, and it ended up taking her mental health. And she died last year, 87 years old, and was really a sweet woman, but she never had a life. Right. Yeah. Because your mother, I mean, just like Jehoshaphat, yeah. <laughs> you kind of see what's going wrong here. Um, we we got a problem, and she's this is all about letting God fight your quote unquote battles. And what she's actually preaching on is something different than the biblical teaching regarding spiritual warfare. But she is equating this with spiritual warfare. What this story in Second Chronicles is about is about coming to the Lord in the midst of our troubles, to call upon him in the day of our trouble. And this is truly what God wills for us to do. This is, but although the story she's telling from Second Chronicles is a story regarding a battle that the Lord won for Jehoshaphat, this is not a spiritual warfare text. So the idea here is is that she's twisting God's word by confusing categories, and um, she's engaging in narcissism where she's sticking stuff into the text and kind of allegorizing it. But the funny thing is is that what she's saying isn't really so far off the mark that you, you that it's like unusable. But the problem is is that it's off a number of degrees so much so that she's adding confusion rather than clarity regarding what we're dealing with, who our enemies are, and things like this. And this is the this is the major problem with narcissistic eisegesis, is that it sticks us in the middle of these Old Testament narratives and really doesn't help us rightly understand it. And so you'll note it note that when I made drew the parallel between Second Chronicles 20 and Ephesians 6, I focused in where there was a clear parallel. And that is, is that in the day of trouble, 
Jehoshaphat and all the people of Judah, they prayed. They they literally got on their knees and beseeched God and literally held back up to God his promises, you know, and the fact that he is the one who brought them out of Egypt, that he is the one who who gave them the land as the inheritance, and there they were faced with a real with a real problem, a real enemy, and and they had they had nothing that they can do. They they confess their inability and their powerlessness in the midst of that situation, and they called upon God, and God heard their prayer, and God delivered them. So that's not spiritual warfare in the truest sense. But what you, the idea then is is that let's kind of then talk about where we can find real parallels now. I am not saying that if you have a financial catastrophe happen in your life that um, that this text doesn't have something to say to it. In, in a sense, it does. And you can say that when you have something terrible happen to you, we are admonished by this passage to get on our knees, confess our powerlessness, and beseech God in his mercy to help us. That's what it's teaching. Spiritual warfare, though, is something different than this, different category altogether, but the solution is still the same. It's prayer. But the, the spiritual warfare is really contending against you know, the, 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 the schemes of the devil to destroy you, but most more importantly, to destroy the gospel, sound doctrine, the, pro, the proclamation of Christ and him crucified, for our sins, where he harasses us with the intent goal of getting our, getting us off message, off topic, and not telling people about Christ, not discipling, and things like that. And so what's the solution to both types of situations? Answer? Prayer. That's the common denominator in all of this. And so it's not that she's really teaching heresy here. She's not. But what she is doing is twisting God's word, and she's not being being careful in her exegesis and her in her teaching of the categories. And as a result of it, she's adding confusion and teaching a bad way of approaching the scriptures. I think you get the idea here. So, you know, we've uh, we've taken a look at well, kind of ignoring the word of God altogether, and now we've got Joyce Meyer and her just uh, just unskilled in what she does, and yet she fills arenas because everyone thinks, oh, this is the best stuff ever. Yeah, no, really, it's not. All right, moving along, next segment, uh, this is going to be part two of our look at what Father Gans was saying, but in order to uh, get to it, we're going to have to do this. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Doug Paget. This is their avant-garde, non-martinist conforming rendition of Strauss's also Sprock Zarathustra. Now, in case you haven't detected, um, they are not actually following modern definitions of notes, but they are literally being led by Sarayu. Oh, this is so cutting edge. Oh, can't you just feel it? 
amazing. Can somebody grab a Q-tip? I think my ears are bleeding. All right, we're going to head back over to Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. This is where the vision casting leader, John Mark Comer, holds court. And if you remember, it was a few years ago now, it was Comer who was the seeker-driven vision casting fellow who was teaching, yeah, polytheism. <laughs> yeah, if you go into the archives of Fighting for the Faith, fightingforthefaith.com, type in polytheism, you will see uh, some a review that we did where John Mark Comer was literally teaching polytheism. That's not the Trinity. That's the belief in many gods. And uh, and so uh, we took him to task on that, and he's become a little, how should we say, um, quiet regarding uh, <clears throat> polytheism. But here's, again, kind of an interesting thing. We have a fellow by the name of Father Rick Gans, and Father Rick Gans uh, was preaching there at um, John Mark Comer's Bridgetown Church not all that long ago, and apparently he and John Mark Comer are well, quite the friends, so much so that you 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 let a Roman Catholic priest actually have your pulpit. And uh, what happens when you let a Roman Catholic priest have your pulpit? Well, you know they start teaching, you know, Roman Catholic stuff. You know, like Roman Catholic mysticism, which is what it is that we're going to be listening to as um, Father Gans begins to now. This is part two, by the way. Take the seeker-driven crowd there and move them into a belief that they can practice a spiritual practice known as the examine, which is a Jesuit practice. And the Jesuits were formed specifically to get rid of Protestants. And this Roman Catholic Jesuit mysticism is supposed to, well, I'll let him explain. Here we go. When you and I remain in God and God remains in us, we don't have to do our presence gives right yeah i'm being hypnotized by this man's voice okay i don't know what he just said or meant but he said it in such a calm and soothing manner it's what john means over and over again by the word abide or remain in me you're always trying to figure out some more things you might do to work the relation. He says, all you have to do is stay with me and I with you. And you've understood it. I don't understand anything you're saying. Think of how the branches on the vine abide in the vine. Okay. One is the extension and directly related. But the vine also is present in the grapes, even though it didn't make them, because without the vine, the grapes aren't there. I think this is dubious horticulture. I want you to think of abiding like this. One of my favorite images, and I've rarely seen it because I don't have a chance. When I've watched young married couples put their kids to bed. And then as the little ones fall asleep with stories about Catholics burning Protestants. 
<laughs> that was really tricky, wasn't it? I don't know where that came. Sorry. <laughs> Whatever it takes to put the little ones to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the most beautiful thing that the parents simply watch their child sleep. No, they're watching to make sure they are breathing because they're afraid they're going to die. I know they're not doing anything, but I feel the power of the abiding. They feel the connection with their little one, and it makes them closer as a couple. Um, you're not married. Beautiful. Another example of abiding. I don't know women, why women like to do this. And I've, I'll never have a chance for this one because of my vow. Right, because you're a celibate Roman Catholic priest. Okay. Women love, I guess, they love to put their heads on the chests of their men and listen to their heart. Not my wife. And if this isn't true, don't tell me. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, now notice here, if you were paying attention, um, when we played you know, uh, Jennifer LeClaire yesterday on her second appearance on uh, Michael Brown's program, what did she say she likes to do to have intimacy with Jesus and lay on his breast and listen to his heartbeat. And I, <laughs> this is mysticism talk. All right. This is total straight up mysticism. And you'll note here, there's no denying that who they're learning this from is a practicing celibate Roman Catholic priest. But I love that thought. They're not doing anything. Listening is doing nothing? They're feeling the connection. Ah, so that's what abiding is. Uh-huh. No. They feel the friendship. Jesus said, abide in my word. He didn't say, sit on my chest and listen to my heartbeat. And by I again, just that total picture, I'm really struggling with it because that turns Jesus into, like, my bearded boyfriend and blah! And I like to imagine that contemplative prayer is like putting our head on the chest of God and hearing his heartbeat. Ew. No questions to ask, no explanations required of God, just the felt sense of friendship. The, the, the felt sense of friendship. N note here. Where does the Bible teach us to do this? Where does the Bible explain that this is what abiding is? Answer, it doesn't. Jesus says, abide in my what? My word. 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 You know, and then, you know, and th when it talks about abiding, it's not talking about this. This is, you'll notice here that mysticism always steers away from agape love into eros and it starts to become eerily romantic in its metaphors and things like this 
wrong way of considering love. Now, see, that's kind of an important thing. In the English language, we got one word for love. It's love, and it, it's it's an all-duty word. I mean, love can mean I love that car. You know, that means I really think it's cool. Or I could say I love my wife. And depending on the circumstances, love my wife can mean something rather than me. You know, uh, uh, what I could also say is I love my wife. Okay, now now it's taking on a different meaning altogether. Let's not go there. This is a family-friendly program. But the idea here is is that in Greek there are four words for love. And in talking about the love of God and our love for God, it never uses eros. And so mysticism, number one, it's what it promotes isn't even biblical. Number two, it turns love for God and the love of God into eros, it romantic. And no, 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 no. And just because the Bible talks about the church being the bride of Christ— does not give us warrant to steer into this mystical way of doing things. So I'm going to go abide with Jesus right now, and I'm going to just, you know, lay on his breast and listen to his heartbeat. No! We use the word meditation in Christian language to describe holy thinking about holy things. John Mark is a writer and a publisher, and he writes many homilies too, and you've heard them and appreciate them. Yeah. yeah, that I would think that would be John Mark Comer, the vision casting leader of uh, Bridgetown Church. Let me back this up just a smidge. We use the word meditation in Christian language to describe holy thinking about holy things, which is a pretty legitimate way of talking about meditation. It's um, the the in the Hebrew the idea is kind of like the chewing of the cud. You know, you got a biblical text, you've read it out, you're thinking about it, so your mind's chewing on it. That's a right, a proper way of thinking about biblical meditation. But what he's talking about is something different. John Mark is a writer and a publisher, and he writes many homilies too, and you've heard them and appreciate them. He has to meditate in order to do that, to think about holy things. But he wouldn't want any of those books out there or any of the words out there if it wasn't about bringing you to a contemplative awareness of the connection God has with you. Um, okay, meditation is different than contemplative. They're not synonyms. A felt sense of the friendship of God. Um, where in the Bible does it teach that there are practices that I can do that will create a quote-unquote felt sense of the friendship with God? What is this? Now, in order to grow in a capacity to understand prayer as a way of seeing all reality as given you by God to live with him, in order, in experience, to hear the heartbeat of God. Uh-huh. Right. Something nowhere in Scripture am I told that I'm supposed to do or can do. To feel the connection, we have to train. Right. We're going to go into training here to feel the connection. And I'd like to offer you as your prayer practice this week, because I'm supposed to do that, a practice that's very dear to the Jesuits, founded in 1540. Yeah, founded in 1540 to overthrow and destroy the Protestant Reformation. You kind of left that part out. 
Oh, man, let me back this up. A practice that's very dear to the Jesuits, founded in 1540. And if you practice this faithfully this week, once a day, you might find that you'll start thinking or imagining. Thinking or imagining what? It's called the examine. Right. A Roman Catholic Jesuit mystical practice. Not found in Scripture, by the way. It's the dear prayer of Jesuits. I'm sure, yeah. Along with the made the heretic reformers and Protestants burn in hell. And it's the practice of the highest art. Right, yeah, highest art, yeah. In our fellowship. I'm sure. Its full name is the examination of consciousness, not examination of conscience. It's an awareness of being placed in the midst of experiences and rummaging around in the experiences, looking for the blessing of God in there. You want me to what? Rummage through my experiences, looking for the blessings of God in in my what? So is this like picking, you know, things up at a, like a garage sale? In order to do this practice, you do like you do here. You take a lot of time to warm you guys up and make sure you're here in no place else. And that's the whole worship thing. Beautifully done. And the music ministers don't quit until they have a sense that you're all here in no place else. At least I think that's what they're doing. And they're good at it. It's their art. It's the way they pray the room into focus. Pray the room into focus? Where are you guys getting any of this stuff? So before any prayer... There is the preparation, yeah. and so you make that preparation. And then these five steps, and I'll just quickly say them, and then I'll be done here. Right. Apparently, you can do this with just five steps. Okay, step one. The first one is you pray for light. Right. Why don't I just turn one on? Mary, the mother of God, is remembered for a prayer that she prayed, my soul magnifies the Lord. And what she's saying is, I want my life to be the kind of life that when people are around me, I'm a magnifier of God's presence in that space. <laughs> what do these words even mean? Oh, man, a magnifier of God's presence in this place. What? I mean, is marijuana legal in, in Oregon? So that when I'm here, it's easier for everyone else to see that God's here. Uh, <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time getting through all five of these steps. Continue, please. Tell us more. So we pray at the beginning of the exam for, for light, that God will make himself just cut us some slack and make himself more obvious so we don't miss his presence. Step one. How, how does God make himself more obvious? Is this like doing a spiritual Where's Waldo exercise? The second step is rummage around in your experience looking for blessings, moments when you felt blessed, surprised by joy, touched by a graciousness. Where does the Bible tell me to rummage around in my experiences? And hunt for it. through your, and, uh, Or hunt for these things. Your memory. Is this like an Easter egg hunt? And when you find one, 
lean into it and open your memory. How do I lean into an experience in my memory? I don't think spatially, spatial metaphors are helping me get this. And you're feeling toward it so that you're enriched by it. You really experience it. I mean, this sounds all pious and religious and stuff, but none of this makes any biblical sense. And we're not taught to do any of this in the Bible. Step three. Okay. Pick among all those experiences where you felt the strongest affective response. You do realize you're talking to Americans and they don't do well with polysyllabic words. I'm just saying. Just notice this particular thing draw drew out the strongest affective response. And this can be things like... I can just see the people in the audience there. What's an affective response? I bet. So they pull out their smartphones. They're probably Googling this right now going, affective. How do you spell that? Is it with an A? I think it's with an A. So they're they're trying not to you know, be obvious, but they have no clue what that word means. Intense joy or surprise or delight or anger or confusion or... Oh, I'm having confusion right now. Yeah, I'm having an affective response to this confusion. Yeah. Hopelessness. Yeah. Wherever the affect was the strongest. Yeah, yeah. I'm feeling hopeless right now. Grab onto that. Okay, I got it. And lean into it. All right. Do I go right, left, forward, or backwards? Looking to understand what it means. Um, What does it mean? What does it mean? I have no idea. It, may, it just means that I'm pretty annoyed with your false teaching. Step four, take that experience okay. to Jesus. <laughs> you want me to take it to Jesus? Do I wrap it up? Put it in, Maybe put a, you know, some wrapping paper around it, put a bow on it. Jesus, take a look. I was rummaging around in my experiences, and I found this affective response thingy. And I was feeling hopeless, and so I wrapped this up, and I decided I was going to bring it to you. Do I give it to him while I'm leaning on his lap, listening to his heartbeat? How do I do this? And say, have you ever felt anything like this before? <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to lose it. And he might remind you of a text from the gospel in which he had a feeling like that. So you go read it so that the feeling you have helps you understand what he felt. And in that regard, you grow together. Where are you getting this? And then the last step, you thank God for this moment that you could learn something about what he's like. You know what? This sounds like the very pious version of the Happy Gilmore thing where you go to your happy place. Man. (sighs) Folks, that that has nothing whatsoever to do with biblical Christianity. That is, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you are going to shipwreck your faith if you're going to be practicing like that because whatever you're feeling at this point, that ain't Jesus. No way. What it, it's either your brain has like decided to like create delusional, you know, things that you can now talk to, or worse, you've now you're hearing the heartbeat of a demon because that's just all gobbledygook. And <laughs> Father Gans, a celibate Roman Catholic priest, was openly teaching a Jesuit practice 
in Roman Catholic mysticism to a group of Protestant seeker-driven people. And mm, anyway, I, my apologies. I, I believe I'm having an affective response right now. And it, it's it, maybe I need to wrap this up and take it to Jesus and see if he ever felt this way. <sighs> yeah, I think you get the point. All right. <laughs> Wow, that's all I can say is, wow, that uh, was just dark and awful. But uh, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Higher Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with a good sermon from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. And don't worry, I picked it specifically because I thought it'd be a great anecdote antidote to this. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death. Of a salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Oi, Captain, we got ourselves a heretic. (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon. Good sermon to end the week off. Good antidote for poison. Oh, man, that we just listened to. Holy smokes. Pray for the people in that church in Oregon. Let's do this right. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. 
We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley Stoke on Trent in the UK. Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. The name of the sermon is Guard, and he will be exegeting 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. Pay attention to proper distinction of law and gospel and the importance of sound doctrine, which will be in a well major emphasis of this sermon. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Our scripture reading this evening is in the first epistle of Paul to Timothy and chapter 6. First Timothy Chapter 6, the final chapter of the book, Paul here is in the section where he is giving advice. He is saying, do this, and he advises various groups. He speaks of those who are slaves, he speaks of those who are teachers, and he speaks of those who are wealthy. So 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them. Because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you, 
in the sight of God who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honour and everlasting power. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Now we come this evening to the last couple of verses of this epistle, this letter of Paul to young Timothy. And the great emphasis in this letter is on the church of God. It is in the church that Timothy, as an elder, is to fulfill his ministry. And the church is in a battle. The phrase is often used of the church in the present age, the church militant. That is the church at war. Now that warfare, of course, is not a physical warfare. It is a spiritual warfare, as the Apostle explains in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It is a spiritual battle. And it is a war, a conflict, a combat that is centred on this point of the truth. What is the gospel? And therefore the church has always, in her best times at least, countered false teaching primarily by teaching the truth, not by using force. In fact, it's notable even into the medieval period in Europe. The first response that the church had when people were suspected of teaching error wasn't to prosecute them for heresy, which was by that point, and in fact was ever since the time of the Emperor Theodosius, way back in the 5th century, it had been a civil offence to be a heretic. Theodosius came up with that on his own. He felt the church wasn't doing everything they were supposed to be doing, and so he would help the church along by punishing heretics himself as the emperor. But the church took the position, no, what actually needs to be done is if somebody is teaching error, 
They need to be corrected by the truth. Because spiritual error, false teaching, is best answered by true teaching. So what would be done rather than sending in, we have this idea very often, they would send in the Inquisition to haul people off to be executed. That actually never really happened. What they would do is they would send in somebody who knew the Bible to dispute with those people who were teaching a falsehood. And so Paul says to Timothy, Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Now the question then is what was committed to his trust? What is this deposit? The picture here is that of a deposit that you might give to somebody, give to a banker. Because in those days you didn't have international banks, so if you were going on a journey you would commit your funds perhaps to a banker and say, look after this while I'm gone. And the point of this is that the deposit is to be guarded. The deposit is a a single thing. It's that which is referred to in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus, that good thing which was committed to you, same language here, committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. That is the pattern of sound words. In our chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3, we read of the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the doctrine which accords with godliness. It is this which is to be guarded. It's often referred to in the Bible as the faith. The faith, that is the belief, the things that are believed by God's people. The faith. So, for example, Acts 14 and verse, well, read from verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God exhorting them to continue in the faith. Not just in faith, in belief. They were exhorted to continue in that, of course, but in the faith, which is the Christian belief. There is a a specific, definite, certain content to Christian belief. So that... While some people act as though it's very, very unloving to say that certain people are not Christians, well, actually, if there is a, a certain standard of belief, if the Bible teaches a certain specific set of teachings, and some of those are absolutely core teachings, there are points on which true believers disagree. 
the most obvious one is the question of the millennium. You know, there are some Christians who believe that Jesus Christ, when he comes again, that will inaugurate, that will begin a thousand-year reign on earth. And there are others who look at the, the teaching of the millennium, the language of the reigning for a thousand years in Revelation, and see it as symbolic of the whole era between Christ's ascension and Christ's coming again. And there are yet others who see that as a period of time that occurs at the end of the present age, where there will be a period of time where the whole world, more or less, is Christianized. And that's a, a point of legitimate disagreement. When it comes to Christ's second coming, there's one thing that is absolutely vital, absolutely central, is this. That Jesus Christ is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. That every eye will see him. That he will bring an end to this present age. And that his kingdom shall last forever. The literal, physical, visible second coming of the Lord is absolutely central. If anyone denies that they are skating on very, very thin ice indeed. But where people disagree over details of the events surrounding that, well, the book of Revelation is not the clearest book in the world to understand at times. And so we don't say, well, because so-and-so disagrees with my view on what 666 means, then so-and-so is not a Christian. But we do say that if so-and-so says Jesus is never coming back, then so-and-so has denied a, a central point of the faith. Because the faith is real. The faith, the belief. The, there is a content to Christian faith. So again, in his epistle to the Romans, Paul speaks of, in verse 5, he speaks of the Lord Jesus. He says, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. He emphasizes that there are certain things that you must believe. And there are certain things that if you don't believe them, then... It's not a matter of being mean or unpleasant, but you've got to say, well, if somebody says, for example, refuses to say that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that person is not a Christian. Because the resurrection is absolutely central. What was it that the apostles preached? They preached Christ and the resurrection from the dead. And if Christ is not risen, says the Apostle Paul, then our faith is in vain. Our faith is useless if Christ has not risen from the dead. This is the point that the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand by.
by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all, and that's not just first of all in time, that's first of all in importance as well, that which I also receive, the faith, the deposit, is that which is handed down. That which I also receive is not something we make up ourselves. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And these are central aspects of our faith. This absolute, vital, central content that the faith has content and that content is for us what is written in the Bible when the New Testament was being written of course it included an element that was passed down by the apostles by word of mouth because the New Testament was not yet completed During the period covered by the Acts of the Apostles, for example, the Acts of the Apostles didn't exist. Think about it, the the book, its history, could only be written after the events it recorded had happened. So during that period, that book didn't exist. But everything that was in it, particularly we have the records of the preaching of the Apostles, was handed down verbally but now we today have the written scriptures and the written scriptures contain all that we need so the apostle Paul says very familiar words to us I'm sure 2 Timothy chapter 3 from verse 15 from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible doesn't know and knows nothing of this idea that some people have that's quite popular in Roman Catholicism that you have two sources, say the Romanists. You have have both scripture and tradition. But what's the tradition? Well, ultimately to the Roman Catholic, it's what the Roman Catholic Church tells you it is. In other words, really the two sources you have in Rome are the Bible and the Roman Catholic Church, ultimately. But no, we're never told that there will be a church that will hand on tell you what you are to believe, but that this is what is found rather in the scriptures, in those wholesome words, those sound words. And that word is then to be guarded. It's a word that is threatened by false teaching. A word that is undermined 
attacked by false teachers. So first Timothy chapter 4 verse 11. Paul says these things command and teach. Command and teach. So it's guarded in part by teaching. Again, verse 13 of the same chapter, Till I come, Paul says to Timothy, give attention to reading, and that's particularly to public reading of the Bible, to exhortation, to doctrine, to teaching. So again, teaching, it must be taught. The Bible is, therefore, the teaching of the Bible is at the centre of what the church does. And again, Paul says to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And the, the word dividing there, it's not the idea that you have to divide it up into portions and say, well, this applies to these people, those apply. It's rather it's the idea of carving for example, the Sunday roast, that if it's to be eaten, the food is to be portioned out so that everybody is properly fed. It is taught, and it must be loved. People have tried many, many ways to keep churches faithful. But there's only one way to keep churches faithful to the word of God and that's for the people in the churches to love the word of God to desire the word of God it's striking you know that one of the points where Christians differ with each other is on the church government you've got the Episcopalians like the Anglicans who say well you, you need to have a centralised body and you have this hierarchy if you will this organization of leaders where you have the archbishops the bishops and so on and that hasn't worked to preserve churches from false teaching you've got now in the church of england those who are saying well something must be done to provide an alternative episcopal oversight because most of the bishops in the c of e are pretty much worthless in terms of their teaching. Then you've got the Presbyterians who say, well, the, the, there's only one sort of presbyter, one sort of elder, but that all the churches should be linked together. So you've got each church has its own leadership team, and then all the churches in a particular area are grouped together and their leaders meet together, and then above them you have all the, these areas will send their representatives, and so on. So you have general assemblies, synods, etc. And that doesn't work. The Church of Scotland is Presbyterian, and yet the Church of Scotland has decided that same-sex marriage is all right, really. The uh, URC, the United Reformed Church in Britain, Presbyterian structure, one of the most unfaithful churches 
to the word of God that there is. Well, then you have others who say, well, independency is the way to go. Just as our church is independent, the FIEC is a a fellowship of independent churches. If they tell us to do something, we can actually say to them, we don't want to do it, and there's nothing much they can do about it. They can't give orders to the churches. But again, independency doesn't keep churches faithful. Only loving the word of God keeps churches faithful. You can have the best confession of faith in the world. And the church can just ignore it if they want to. If they don't love the word of God. But it is to be guarded by being loved. The truth must be loved. And on the other hand, there will always be opposition. And it's not primarily violent opposition. We think a lot about persecution, and quite rightly so. But the biggest problem for the churches isn't persecution. It's false teaching. Because false teachers don't just want to be outside the churches. They want to get on the inside. They want to take control. So... Jude, the brother of Jesus, one day he sat down to write a letter to the churches and he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only God and our Lord, the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here you have people who were looking at the grace of God and saying, if God is gracious, then we can do what we like, it doesn't matter how we live. They turned the grace of God into lewdness and they denied the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not told how it was that they did that, what the detail of their false teaching was, but they taught falsely about the grace of God and about the Lord Jesus Christ. Himself And what they try to do, they try to draw people away after them. They will come in very often and they will say, well, have you thought about this or that or the other thing? And they will twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And so, Paul says to Timothy, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions... Of what is falsely called knowledge. There is a time and a place for dealing with false teaching. When you have the Jehovah's Witnesses on the doorstep or the Mormons coming around, it's important to talk about these things. But as much as possible, we are to avoid it. We're not to give them any more credit, any more time than they manage to get for themselves. We are certainly not to fall for it, and I think this is largely what Paul is saying here, is that don't fall for these 
profane and idle babblings and contradictions. And the idea is that they coming in and they are like the devil in the garden. Did God really say? Contradicting the word of God. And what they have, he says, is what is falsely called knowledge. Now, most historians say that after the Judaizing heresy, that false teaching that said that you must, that Gentiles must become Jews in order to become Christians, after the Judaizing heresy, the first great heresy to come into existence was what's called Gnosticism. And it's from this word knowledge, gnosis. And it's something that's very, very common among false teachers. They claim to have special knowledge. I remember when I was at university, I was just got back from the holidays. I was strolling up to my digs in the suburbs of the city and a couple of nicely dressed young men with white shirts and name badges on turned up, came along and I was very tired at the time, not really in any mood to talk to them, but, and said, we're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and do you want to know what God was doing in the Americas at the time of Jesus? Well, largely the response, certainly what I felt, no, not really, and if I did, I wouldn't ask you. But the Book of Mormon is a great example of knowledge falsely so-called. It claims to give to be another testament of Jesus Christ. It claims to be knowledge. Now Joseph Smith has this cock and bull story about finding a or being shown to a hidden golden book, and if you read his account of it, you then people have done the calculations. And Joseph Smith, in his account, speaks of running while carrying this golden book. If you do the calculations, he could really have barely staggered while carrying that. He didn't know how much that amount of gold weighs. But knowledge falsely so-called, he said, I was shown this book. You've got the Jehovah's Witnesses, the JW, their leadership, the governing body, say they And they alone have the knowledge to interpret the scriptures. The JWs don't claim to have special revelation in that sense, but they claim to have the authority, the knowledge. And and of course their founder, Charles Taser Russell, said that if a man has been reading his studies in the scriptures and leaves off doing it, then in a very short time the Bible will be darkness to him. Knowledge falsely so-called. And all false teachers are bringing knowledge falsely so-called. They say, we know, we have special knowledge. Paul says, don't fall for it. They are professing what is falsely called knowledge. The founder of the JW, as Charles Taylor Russell, claimed to be able to read Greek. And when a newspaper in Brooklyn, New York, published an article saying Mr. Russell doesn't know a word of Greek, he sued them, which is always a very stupid thing to do if the claim is true, of course, and it was. So he appeared in the the witness stand and 
the defence attorney produced the Greek alphabet and said, could you read that for us? And he couldn't. Knowledge falsely so called. Many claim, they go on about the visions they claim to have seen. And there are those who will go on and on about these things and yet knowledge falsely so called cannot be tested, cannot be seen. There were those last year saying, oh God has shown me that Donald Trump won't be president of the United States. Knowledge falsely so called. And that's a humorous and largely largely harmless example but you get all kinds of claims of this knowledge falsely so called by professing it by listening to this stuff by following this stuff some have strayed concerning the faith wandered off because someone said oh you know this word really means that this bible text really means so and so well For the most part, what the Bible text means is what it says. For the most part, our English Bibles are pretty well translated, certainly the reputable ones. For the most part, if someone says, well, what it really means is, well, what it really means is what it says. We are instead no not to look at claims of special knowledge, claims of special revelation, but to keep it biblical, to keep with the Bible, the once for all committed to the saints' faith. Because Christianity is content. There is such a thing as the faith, which must be guarded by being loved. By being studied, if those who know their Bibles, when the Mormons or the witnesses or whoever comes to the door, those who know the Bibles can say, as the the Lord Jesus did to the devil, it is written, it is written, and are not led astray by the lessons that it's funny, you know, your false teachers, they tend to have a, a small number of Bible texts they camp out on, and they haven't got a clue about the rest of it. Move away from their favourite texts, and they're all at sea. But we are to know this book from cover to cover, to read it cover to cover, to know the true knowledge, so that we do not fall, fall prey to knowledge falsely so-called. May God grant us to love and to keep his word. Amen. Amen. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, by carry death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>